Amen. Quick recap. Today's Genesis 42, which is part of the narrative of the Joseph stories, and it goes for several chapters, this story. This is about the first third of what's coming in the next couple of weeks. Um, and there's a lot of content in this morning's chapter, so we're going to work our way through it, but there are also some uh, solid applications for us to be aware of. So I've entitled this, When Your Past Catches Up With You. You've probably, many of you, would have had something like that in your own experience. Um, the brothers certainly do. Jacob, the father of the 12 sons of Israel, Israel himself, is now in, he's over 100 years of age. He's now around about 130 years of age. Joseph, his son, is down in Egypt, as you know, and he has been exalted in the land and he is now the second in charge. He has the signet ring, the gold chain, he's got the clothes, and he's got the second chariot. Not the Rolls Royce, he's just got the BMW. He then travels throughout the whole land of Egypt, travelling widely. He's only 30 years of age when Pharaoh makes him the Prime Minister, and he engages, in the midst of this seven years of abundance, he engages in this building program, Operation Storehouse, we could call it, where he constructs many of these storehouses where this abundant crop is going to be able to be kept, stored. He's married, he has two sons, the names of them demonstrate his faith, and of course the seven years come to an end, they always do. Life doesn't go on, you know, upward and to the right, does it? There are twists and turns and bumps and curves and struggles and heartaches. That's true for all of us. You could be in a good spot right now, well, just keep living for a bit longer and that'll change. Something else will happen. You could be in a bad spot right now and that will change as well. Uh, life is filled with these sorts of changes. Merchants are now travelling towards the land of Egypt because there is food, there is grain in the land of Egypt. We aren't told if there had been bumper crops in other lands. We're just not informed of that. Maybe. But either way, they had maybe squandered it all or it's now all gone and this is probably in the first year of the famine. Some nations are heading down there, merchants and traders. Jacob hears about it and he invites his sons to go travelling down, to join into that group of people going down. So here we go. Uh, that's just telling what I just told you about Jacob travelling all throughout Egypt. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you sit around looking at each other? They're the words of a frustrated parent, I guess, for the inactivity of his sons. Um, which word in there do you think would have worried the sons? When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, why would Egypt worry them? Because that's where they had sold Joseph to, to the Ishmaelites or the Midianites, travellers, they sold him to them for silver and they took him down to Egypt. So they're sitting around looking at each other about what are we going to do? We don't really want to go to Egypt. We don't have much choice. The first year of the famine, they would have survived from last year's crops and a bit of excess, but now it's the second year of the famine. Food's running out. Things are getting tough. And Dad says to them, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there now and buy some for us so they may live and not die, of course. They're obedient to that, but I wonder what they're thinking. The ten sons of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. Jacob didn't send Benjamin. Why not? Well, because he's the youngest and he's the second and last son 
of his beloved favourite wife, Rachel. He's the last living reminder of her. And he may have let Joseph, who was his favourite, we're told in Genesis 37, gave him that lovely coat, long-sleeved or many-coloured, whichever way it goes. He let Joseph at least wander around the hillside going looking for his brothers. But it appeared Benjamin was kept at home. He's not going anywhere. Why? Because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Interesting way to express it, harm. I wonder if Jacob's beginning to wonder or be suspicious about what the brothers had said about Joseph. I wonder what their attitude was towards Benjamin. We're not told anything different. In fact, we're not told anything about what their attitude to Benjamin is. Was it the same as what they had towards Joseph? Anyway, Jacob is being very protective and Ben is not going. So the ten of them set off. And the story continues. Now Joseph was governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all of its people. And in this particular part of the story, this is not something Joseph has delegated to somebody else. It seems that they have to come to him. The foreigners have to go through him. He's going to be vetting this whole process personally, at least in the providence of God. That's how it unfolds in this particular occasion. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, what do they do? They bow down to him. Faces, what does that remind you of? His dream. It's starting to be fulfilled. This is 22 years later. He was 17 when he got sold. He was 30, so for 13 years he's in the house of the guardhouse, house of Potiphar of the guardhouse, because he is 30 when he becomes prime minister of um, Egypt. There are the seven years of abundance, 37, and now this is the second year of the famine. So he's 37, 39. He's 39 years of age. And this is 22 years after he had that dream. 22 years later, something must have happened in his heart where he went, wow, what God said to me is beginning to be fulfilled. This isn't the fulfillment of it because in his vision he saw the sun, the moon and the 11 stars. This is just 10. So the sun, which is dad, and the 11 stars are the 11 brothers. That includes Benjamin. That's yet to be fulfilled. But he's going to cooperate with what God is doing as best he understands. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them, but he pretended to be a stranger and he spoke harshly with them. He is speaking fluent Egyptian through an interpreter, as we'll see as the story unfolds. And he asked them harshly, is it payback time? I don't think so, but it'd certainly be very human to understand it to be that. I think something else is going on. Where do you come from? They all answered in their Hebrew tongue from Canaan, why are you here to buy food? He, of course, is very suspicious and he says so. Although Joseph recognised his brothers, they didn't recognise him. Why didn't they recognise him, do you think? Well, number one, they probably thought he was dead by now. 22 years have passed and he's a slave in Egypt. And on the way down there, they would have seen how slaves were being treated and they may have concluded he's not going to survive that. Plus, they're probably hiding a little bit amongst the multitude of travellers, trades and merchants and so on, travelling to and from Egypt and they're hidden in the midst of that. There they may not have wanted to go to Egypt, they 
probably, I'm guessing, rationalised, thought, we won't bump into him. He's probably dead anyway. Um, And so off they go. But in the providence of God, God has other plans and he's going to arrange for them to actually to meet up. They didn't recognise Joseph. Why not? Well, not only would they have thought perhaps that he was dead, but Joseph has changed in appearance. He was 17 when they last saw him. He's now 39. If you looked at my photo when I was 17 and you looked at me when I was 39, would there have been a difference? Yes. He's of a different stature. He's of a different build. He's of a different strength. He doesn't have a beard anymore. He's clean shaven. He probably doesn't even have any hair. That's all shaved off too, the Egyptian way. He's got eye makeup on, the Egyptian thing. He's got a little goatee which the officials of Egypt used to love to have, made it out of horsehair and stuck it on. He's got the ring, the chain, the robes, and he's speaking Egyptian, not Hebrew. He looks different. He sounds different. They didn't recognise him. But as the text says, they recognise him. Plus he's got a new name, Zaphonath Pataniah, or however you pronounce it. 22 years and he has changed. In the providence of God, remember what this is about? What happens when the past catches up with you? When he saw them, then he remembered his dreams. And he said to them, you're spies. Just like Moses will send 12 spies into the land to see how do we conquer this thing, so you're spies. You've come to spy out the land while it's in its weakness in this time of famine. You want to find out our weak spots. You've come to see where we are unprotected. No, 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 my Lord, my Lord. His brothers are calling him Lord. Your servants, they wouldn't even mention his name before, but now suddenly they're bowing before him. My Lord, your servants. That which God had indicated in the dream is coming to pass. No, your servants come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. We're not a gang of spies. We're family. We have one father. Your servants are honest men. Really? Maybe over the years they've changed. Maybe. But they replied, your servants were two and ten brothers. I just thought this is interesting. The NIV will translate it as 12, because that's what it is. What does two and ten add up to? Quick, quick, quick. Slow. Twelve. How do you write the number 12? Well, you write it as ten and two don't you well that's true well that's how the Hebrew text goes where were two and ten what I noticed though when I was just reading that through was we were two and ten isn't that significant two and ten the two were different to the ten Joseph and Benjamin now I don't know if that's a fair way I'm reading into it a little bit the symbolism of it we're the sons of one man we're all brothers who lives in Canaan. The youngest is now with him. Ah, so Benjamin's still alive. And one is no more. They don't say he's dead, he just isn't. Isn't with us, isn't alive, isn't. We don't know where he is. We know where he went. But they're telling Joseph, and they don't know they're telling Joseph, they're telling this leader part of their history. The more he accuses them, the more information they're giving about their background and why they're there. Joseph said to them, it's just as I told you, you are spies. And this is how you will be tested. 
As surely as Pharaoh lives, again, he's keeping up the ruse. He doesn't swear in the name of God. He doesn't promise in anybody else. As surely as Pharaoh lives, and he does it twice, then you will be, you will not leave Egypt. You will not leave this place unless you bring your younger brother down to, to me. And then I can know that you're telling the truth. And then he threw them in prison. It's interesting if you go through it to see what they did to him and now what he's doing to them. They made accusations against him and now he's making accusations against them. They put him in prison, he put them in prison. And a few other things will come out as we go through as well. You're not going to leave this place unless you bring your younger brother down here. They're stuck and they're in trouble and they know it. God's applying pressure to them. Why? Because God wants them to face and to deal with what they did 22 years ago. What they thought was long ago and buried and forgotten about, God says, no, we need to deal with this. And that's how God works and that's what God does in our lives as well. On the third day, he threw them into prison. When they were in prison, it was a great opportunity for them to think, isn't it? For them to ponder, why is all this happening to us? And increasingly, their spiritual discernment will prove to be correct. But it was time for them to think and to ponder. It's also for time for them to decide which one of us is going to go. Because initially the plan was nine of us are staying, one of us are going. Should the oldest go, Reuben? Should the other one go? Which one should go? Who wants to go? Who wants to go back and tell Jacob that all the rest of us are locked up in jail and we're not going to be released unless Ben, his favourite son, comes down here? Who wants to tell Dad that? Not me. I'd rather wait here in prison, thanks. You go. So they're rumming and ahhing and toing and froing and deciding what's going on. On the third day... They changed their mind and their plan about what to do with Joseph. They threw him in the pit and they're going to walk away and let him die. They changed their plan and they sold him as a slave. So now he changes his plan and he comes into them. Undoubtedly, I think he thought about that. If I keep all nine of these brothers locked up down here and I send one back, what's Jacob going to do? I've just lost nine sons. I'm going to keep the two I've got. I'm not sending them. It would be a foolish decision, but he's processing it. Or it may even give Dad a heart attack. Who knows? <clears throat> Either way, in the providence of God, Joseph changes his mind. And notice what he says to them. On the third day, he comes to the jail, speaking in Egyptian, because he's got his interpreter with him, as you'll see. He says, do this, let's change plans, do this, and you live. Why? Because I fear God. I fear God. I fear Elohim. They missed it. He's referring that he believes in the true and living God or they misunderstood him because Elohim is plural, gods. They may have misunderstood him to be referring to the Egyptian gods. But for us, I fear God. He's indicating he's a true follower, but they missed it. Joseph says to them, you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your, your words can be verified and then you won't die. Nine of you go back, one of you stay, but make sure that when you come back, you bring your younger brother with you. Otherwise, you will not be allowed to trade in the land. You won't be able to buy food. There'll be no point in you coming back. They consented to do it. They agreed. And off they went. What's God doing? Well, God is turning up the heat on these people to draw their attention to their past because here they are in jail in these three days they now say to one another, speaking in Hebrew, he can't understand us. 
so it's safe for us to talk. Surely we are being punished because of our brother, Joseph. Surely. They're correct. This is why this is happening. We saw how distressed he was when, we, when he pleaded with us and we didn't listen to him. That is why now this distress, this trouble has come upon us. Then Reuben, who's in jail there with them, he speaks up, he's the eldest, and he says, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? I told you don't do it. You didn't listen to me and you did it. Now the, his blood is going to be reckoned at our hands. But notice what the brothers call Joseph, our brother. What does Reuben call him? The boy. There has been a change of attitude towards Joseph from these men. There has been a softening. So it's no wonder to read. They didn't realise Joseph could understand them. But he turned away from him and he began to weep. Why was he weeping? Well, I think he was weeping, A, because it was too much for him to realise that, A, they cared about him, particularly new information. Reuben had tried to save him. I told you not to hurt the boy, but you wouldn't listen to me. That's new information. He didn't know that. Um, but I think he's also weeping a little bit because all of that's welling up within him, but he's also about to do some pretty hard things to them. And I think at the bottom of the end of the day, he'd already forgiven them and he still loved them. He wanted to know what's their attitude towards me? What's their attitude towards Benjamin? And depending on what that is, that'll be guiding his decision-making process. Anyway, he toughens up. It's interesting though that when we weep, Often in our society, you know, it's a sign of weakness, isn't it, for men to weep? But it's not. God made us to weep. It's a test of what reveals our character. What do you weep over when you weep? Do you weep for yourself? Do you weep for others? Do you weep for the situations? Anyway, six times in the story, before we get to the end of Genesis, Joseph is going to well up and weep on various occasions. He's a soft-hearted, godly man. Uh, but now he toughens up, he's got a job to do, he fixes the mascara under his eyes and he turns around, says to them in Hebrew through his interpreter, he arrests Simeon. Why Simeon? He's the second born. Why doesn't he arrest Reuben? Because he just learned Reuben tried to save him. So he goes to the next brother, Simeon. And if you read previous chapters, Simeon and Levi are a bit of scoundrels anyway. They're pretty violent sort of individuals. So Simeon is bound in front of them. Why in front of them? I'm guessing. But my, my guess is that Joseph binds him, but he's watching them. What's your response to this arrest? Do you intercede? Do you say something? Or is it all relief and you'll abandon that brother just like you abandoned me 22 years ago? Have you really changed? He's still testing them, still trying to put it all together. Had him bound. Jesus gave then these, uh, Joseph gave these orders, not to them, but to his servants. Fill their bags with grain, put each man's silver back in the sack, and then give them extra provisions for the journey. Joseph is returning their silver to him, and this will eventually scare them. They'll be worried about it. Because you see, that's what guilt does. Even when you are blessed, and that's what Joseph effectively is doing here, he's blessing them, he's providing for them. He pays for it out of his own pocket and he returns the silver. But it's also possible that he's testing them. They sold him for silver. So he's going to return the silver and see 
Will you just take the silver and run and abandon your brother Simeon in jail? Well, we're going to figure it out, find out as we read on which way this pans out. So these guys leave, um, get on their donkeys and leave. And it's about a couple of weeks, three weeks journey probably. So they've got nightly stops. And they come to the place that night where they stop. And one of them, one of the nine, opens his sack to give some grain to his donkey. And he finds the silver is there. Look at his response. He tells the others their hearts sank, they're trembling. And they correctly conclude, what is God doing? What is going on? Increasingly, they're becoming aware that God is at work in them. Their guilt about what they did to Joseph needs to be faced and confessed. That's certainly what God does. Luther says that there are two types of sins. There are sins that we confess and there are sins that we defend, that we bury, that we excuse. God wants us and invites us to confess our sins. And if we confess them, then he promises to forgive and to cleanse. But if we choose the other way, to bury them, not to admit them, not to own them, then we will not prosper, the scriptures teach us. And then God will set about the task of dealing with us. Jesus in the Lord Prayer teaches us that there are two things we need each day, bread and forgiveness. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us for our sins, trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. We notice that certainly if we miss one of our daily meals, what about if we miss daily forgiveness? How does that impact us? The guilt these brothers are feeling was a necessary step on the way to them experiencing God's grace and forgiveness. So too for us. Guilt has a way of eating away the joy. They found silver in the top of their sacks. I want you to imagine that you went down to the supermarket and you spent $300 or whatever it is on your groceries. And that when you get home and you open your bags and there is a bundle of $300. Do you trembling say, what is God doing? Are you worried? No. You're going, yippee. They're not. They're worried. Where did this all come from? Is he setting us up? Is he going to accuse us of being thieves? What is God doing? That's where he leaves them. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him everything that had happened. Told him about the ruler, how he was harsh with them. Told him about... Uh, Simeon who is still there and he's going to stay there unless we take Benjamin and take him back and then we'll be able to buy food and grain but if we don't take Benjamin we won't be able to trade in the land to which Jacob 130 years old come back to that their father said to him you have deprived me of my children it's all about me you have deprived me Joseph is no more Simeon is no more now you want to take Benjamin Everything is against me. It's an immature response, isn't it? C.S. Lewis says, that's what happens when you have the awareness, when you be a self. That if you have a self, then that self can also then run the option of being at the centre, that it wants to be first. That in fact it even wants to replace God. That was Satan's sin and that's certainly the sin that he taught the human race, taught Adam and Eve. Jacob is filled with self-pity. Manifested, of course, as self-pity often is, by exaggeration. 
Joseph is no more. Well, fair enough. That's the only information he's got. Simeon is no more. No, Simeon's still alive. Simeon's in jail, but you can rescue him. And nobody wants to take Benjamin and not return him. Jacob is exaggerating because fear, whatever. So too for us, when we become self-focused, when we are filled with self-pity or whatever, when we have arguments with our loved ones, you always, you never, and they're exaggerations because we're trying to defend ourselves. Well, Jacob's got his head in the sand, which is not very effective. Well, what's God doing? Well, God can and is using unexpected events to bring to the surface past memories, to grow and, and to grow the sons, but also to grow Jacob. 130 years of age. He will live for another 17 years. The first step when we are in this sort of situation, confess, acknowledge it, face it. Don't excuse it. God wants you to hear it. God wants you to say it, to confess it. You need to say it. Because guilt turns blessings into distress. It'll rob you of your joy. Takes the flavour out of your food. It wrecks your sleep. Does all other sorts of things to us. If you hide your sin, you will not prosper, the book of Proverbs says. But if you confess it and forsake it, you obtain mercy. These guys found their silver returned in their sex and that's not a blessing because of their guilt, because of their fear, because of the sorrow they have in their hearts. They don't know what's going on. They're still stubbornly resisting that which God wants them to do. Jacob's going to change his mind in the next chapter and so on. What does all of this mean for us? Well, firstly, you can look at it from the brother's point of view that they had, they had done the wrong thing and now God is at work in their lives bringing to the surface that which has been buried, their guilty actions. And God wants them to face it and confess it. They did so in the prison to each other. But they are to do it also with God and to be cleansed and forgiven for it. What does that mean for you? Well, do you have issues that God is bringing to your remembrance that he wants you to confess? And God can turn circumstances south. He can make tough, make life tough. He can increase the pressure because he wants you to deal with this issue. What is God doing? Of course, that's not to say that every time we're in a tough time or a hard time or pressure, that's not necessarily God doing this. But it's always worth asking the question. As I say, if you are ever sick, you should always ask the Lord for yourself. Lord, is this because I have done something wrong? You should always ask the question. Because it could be. Not always. But it could be. That's if you're the brothers. What about Joseph? Well, he teaches us a fair bit, if you think about it, forgiveness. That he has a hard attitude towards them. Revealed in the names of his sons, but now in his own actions towards them, he's demonstrating tough love. He's not just forgetting what they did, he's holding them to account. That's tough love. Not just to ignore it, to say, oh, it doesn't matter. It did matter. And they need to put it right. That's why he's playing tough with them. He's testing their hearts to see what is in it. And he's cooperating with what God is doing to bring them to that point of confession. So if you're a parent, you may need to be tough love with your kids or your grandkids. 
time is going, but I, l I want to tell you this little story. I have a two-year-old grandson, two-and-a-half-year-old. His name's Franklin. The other day, we were returning him home, and Franklin, two, two-and-a-half-year-old, is learning words, not sentences yet, words, and he calls a bus a toot-toot. When he sees a bus, because the bus goes toot-toot. So he pulled up next to the bus, and he says, toot-toot. Nonna, his grandmother, says to him, it's also called bus. Toot-toot. Yes, but it's also called a bus. Toot-toot. <laughs> I, from the front seat, said, Franklin, it's also called a bus. He picked up his water bottle and he went, toot-toot. <laughs> Two and a half years old. Wants to have the last word. That's what sin does. My two-and-a-half-year-old is a sinner, <laughs> driven by self. And kids do it unashamedly. We have to educate them to be civil. But really, that's what we're like. We want our way when we want it, as we want it. And God is trying to teach us. A, if there's guilt, confess it. B, if you've been on the receiving end, someone has been done the wrong thing to you, like Joseph, to extend forgiveness. To hold them to account because they have to repent, but in your heart, to be forgiving towards them. That's certainly what Jesus taught us. It's easy to like people that like you. It's the people who do the wrong thing to you. What does Jesus say we should do to them? Bless them, pray for them, do good to them. That's the difference between being a mature follower of Jesus and one who is still growing. Forgiveness comes out of this chapter. Resilience comes out of this chapter. It's a wonderful illustration about Romans 8.28, all things, God working all things together for good. But let me finish with this. It's also a chapter about conscience and what God uses our conscience. Our conscience is not an infallible guide, but it is given to us by God. And it's shaped and trained by his word. We can have a seared conscience, but God's word can renew it. And our conscience can become a very helpful guide. And in fact, if you're not sure about something and in conscience you shouldn't do it, the scripture says don't do it. Let me tell you these two stories and I'm going to pray because the kids are back. There was a police officer, a young police officer, who was directing traffic in the city one day. And as the sun started to set low in the sky, the sun was hitting straight in the eyes and so he started to squint and he's sort of squinting at the traffic as they're waving it on. And one driver, one guy who's driving the car, thought that the police officer was squinting and looking directly at him. Guilty conscience. And so when he pulled up close to the policeman and the traffic stopped again, he confesses to the police officer, he said, yes, I stole it. And he submitted and was arrested. The police officer didn't know. He just thought the police officer was looking at me. Well, there was a little boy in the kitchen. Her father is at home working and he hears his son in the kitchen. And the father wants to know what the time is. So he sings out to his son in the kitchen where there is a clock on the wall. He says to his son, son, what's the big hand on? Just a young son. What's the big hand on? And after a pause and some embarrassed silence, a little voice comes back, a chocolate biscuit? <laughs> conscience God gave us a conscience so what does all of this mean for us well if you feel guilty face it, admit it, confess it 
someone's hurt you, like Joseph, work towards forgiving them. Listen to your conscience. And above it all, understand and believe that God is at work. God is behind the famine. God is using the tough circumstances to bring about his will. Not just to grow them, but eventually to bring that family down to Egypt, which is what God wants. Where they will grow and prosper, where they'll be afflicted and where they'll be delivered. God is working his purposes out. This took 22 years. God plays the long game. That's trusting him and journeying with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are at work. You don't give up. You don't stop. That you have good plans and good intentions for each of us. And Lord, in your sovereignty, it's beyond us, but you make all things work together for our good, to your glory and to the achievement of your purposes. So Lord, help us to believe and build our life upon that filter, that you are the rock, the stable one, in all of life's ups and downs. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your forgiveness in Jesus. Bless us now as we go to a time of fellowship or to our homes. In Jesus' name, amen.